Welcome to Across the Margin, the podcast. I'm your host, Michael Shields. Across the Margin, the podcast is a proud member of the Osiris Media Group. Check out all their podcasts. They had a couple new ones already this year, and everything got going on like live events over at OsirisPod.com. This episode of Across the Margin, the podcast features an interview with Deborah Rowan Wright, an independent researcher who writes about marine conservation. She has worked with the UK NGOs Whale and Dolphin Conservation, Friends of the Earth, and Marinette. Her work on marine renewable energy, ocean governance reform, and public trust law has been published by the International Whaling Commission and the Ecologist, among others. In 2010, her policy document entitled The Ocean Planet formed an integral part of Marinette's Common Fisheries Policy Reform Campaign, and it won her Friends of the Earth's Communication of the Year Award. The world's oceans face multiple threats, such as the effects of climate change, pollution, overfishing, plastic waste, and more. Confronted with the immensity of these challenges and the oceans themselves, we might wonder what more can be done to stop their decline and better protect the sea and marine life. Such widespread environmental threats call for a simple but significant shift in reasoning to bring about long overdue elemental change in the way we use our ocean resources. In Future Sea, the book at the heart of this episode, ocean advocate and marine policy researcher Deborah Rowan Wright provides the tools for that shift. Questioning the underlying philosophy of established ocean conservation approaches, Deborah lays out a radical alternative, a bold and far-reaching strategy of 100% ocean protection that would put an end to destructive industrial activities better safeguard marine biodiversity, and enable ocean wildlife to return and thrive along coasts and in seas around the globe. Future Sea is essentially concerned with the solutions and not the problems. Deborah shines a light on existing international laws intended to keep marine environments safe that could underpin this new strategy. She gathers inspiring stories of communities and countries using ocean resources wisely, as well as of successful conservation projects to build up a cautiously optimistic picture of the future for our oceans. A passionate, sweeping personal account, Future Sea not only argues for systematic change in how we manage what we do in the sea, but also describes steps that anyone, from children to political leaders, can take towards safeguarding the oceans and their extraordinary wildlife. So in this episode, Deborah and I discuss the bevy of threats facing the ocean and the countless reasons why protecting the oceans is so crucial. We consider how the oceans aid in fighting climate change, how the public trust doctrine might be employed to help protect our oceans, small solutions we can all do to safeguard our oceans, the magnificent sea creatures who call the oceans home that need our protection, and much, much more. I have to say that while Future Sea digs deeply into the troubling problems facing our ocean and thus our world today, because it is so solution-based, it actually gave me hope that we might be able to turn this thing around. A lot of work to be done, though. But for now, I have no doubt you will enjoy this conversation with Deborah Rowan Wright. Cross the margin. Cross the margin. Margin. 
podcast. So Deb, thank you so much. Welcome to the program. I'm so thrilled to talk about uh, Future C. I love the book. I learned so much. So thank you for coming on the program. I appreciate it. Well, it's nice to be here. <laughs> Excellent. So I'd love to just start just hearing a little bit. It's obvious when you read the book, um, your passion for ocean um, preservation. And I'm just curious, um, kind of maybe it, not so much where it began, um, unless you want to speak on that, but some of your, you know, talking about some of your work in uh, marine conservation or just kind of like your relationship to the ocean, your passion for it. I'd love to hear just some general thoughts about that because it's obvious you care a lot about this. Yeah, okay. Well, I was born by the sea, grew mm. up by the sea um, in Lancashire, just north of Liverpool. Mm. So we spent a lot of time on the coast and we always had our holidays by the sea. And my father worked for Cunard, which is the ocean liner company. So he was very much sea based mm. and we'd go on holidays sometimes on the ships mm -hmm. um so life was very much sea orientated yeah um, and then i started working for a later in life after i'd had a family and so forth i started volunteering for marine conservation organizations i did all sorts of really interesting things sometimes out doing survey work, for example, in kind of very remote places and then in the office. And that's when I began to learn an awful lot about the situation and in the sea and how bad it is, basically. Yeah, <laughs> which is which is outlined really, really um, impressively in the book. There's a lot I knew about, but there's also things that I just, it, it, it could be disturbing what's going on. But what's so special about the future sea is there's a big idea at the heart of it um you know in, in about protecting the the whole ocean and you know um it sounds ambitious to many this idea that that's in the book but you talk about you know when you're talking about protecting the whole ocean what you keep going back to is this thought that um you know there's an there's a law out there that already exists that does the idea of it is to protect the whole oceans and so I was wondering if you could tell us about that, because it's something, you know, I think the listener and hopefully future reader of the book would want to know, what is this law? What Can you tell us about the United Nations uh, Convention of the Law and the Sea, kind of uh, yeah. what it is and what it does? Well, so I was working on um, this campaign to get marine protected areas set up around the UK, and it suddenly dawned on me that we were already struggling to protect these tiny pockets of sea. A while industry was was overfishing and polluting and uh, damaging habitats. It seemed like everything was back to front. So uh, I decided to just read about laws, hmm. and and I it was like striking gold, really, because <laughs> I read the I read the whole um, document of uh -huh. the United Nations Law of the Sea. Ooh, that was quite hard going, um, sure. and I found these little nuggets of. Mm -hmm information there which I, I was really surprised about myself because it turns out that actually the whole of the, the whole of the global ocean is already protected by, by international law yeah. but it, it seemed like nobody seemed to know that it was mm -hmm. um so I, I had I actually woke I actually woke up in the middle of the night to have the when I first had the idea it's like Rika. maybe we should think of it the other way around and and then when I found this law, because when I first thought of the idea, I thought, oh, well, yeah, no one's going to want to do that. It's not yeah, possible. Yeah. 
So when I found the law, which it kind of fitted with what I was already thinking, I was, I was thinking, wow, this is great. Like, <laughs> this makes sense. Um, and so I wrote, first of all, wrote a policy document mm-hmm. about that idea, thinking, well, why are we trying to protect little tiny bits of the sea when actually the whole lot is already protected by international law? If we just enforce the law that exists, we don't need to make any marine protected areas. Um, so although it seems ambitious, it is logical. Yeah. Uh, is that, I mean, would that be the problem with the law of the uh, the sea as it is, as it not being effective, is the lack of enforcement? Would, is that the case? Well, it's a bit more complicated than that. A lot sure. of it is just because for some reason the, the articles, I've actually got some written down here in front of me. Please. I mean, it's very clear in a way. Yeah. It's uh-huh. kind of general, but it's clear. It's like states have the obligation to protect and preserve the marine environment. That's one mm-hmm. article. There's mm-hmm. loads of them, actually. I've only, yep. I haven't written more down. Uh-huh. Um, they shall take all measures that are necessary to prevent, reduce, and control pollution of the marine environment from any source. Yeah. Well, that means also from the atmosphere, which actually, that that's talking about carbon emissions. Yeah. yeah. Um, measures shall be taken... That measure taken shall include those necessary to protect and preserve rare or fragile ecosystems, as well as the habitat of depleted, threatened, or endangered species and other forms of marine life. And it's so, there. it goes on. No, there's quite a few like this. I won't read them all, yep. but you know, it, it's it's um, it's quite it's funny because it's quite clear, but it they are quite general and yeah, yeah. Seems to be what happened was so the state, the countries, um signed this agreement hmm. and then just ignored those parts they just ignored yeah. them yeah. like they hadn't done them yeah. oh we don't have to worry about that mm-hmm. so it was signed in 1982 didn't come into force until 12 years later yeah. um and it's got it's not just about the conservation obviously that's just part of it it's also yeah. they say it's the most complex and comprehensive international agreement ever achieved because it had to cover Military activities, rights of passage, access for landlocked states, shipping lanes, cable laying, territorial zones, you know, loads of other stuff as well, which most of which, you know, the parties do follow. But they just kind of forgot about the other bit bit that we're interested in. Oh, we won't bother that. That's just the normal nature. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no, it it does. When you learn more about it and you go through the articles in the book uh, of the law, it's super, super comprehensive. Um, and you're right. It's right there. It's, it's almost frustrating that the idea that this this solution was right in front of our face the whole time. I'd love to step back just for a moment and talk about, um, I know, uh, and I'm sure some of this seems obvious, but the idea of why protect it, why do we protect our oceans? Why do we need to? Why is this so important? I mean, you mentioned there's a line, oceans make all life possible and enable it to flourish. Um, I would absolutely love to hear you talk about the importance of healthy oceans um, to sustaining life on Earth and just kind of this. It's so crucial that we take care of our oceans better. Air, first of all, air to breathe. Mm-hmm. Uh, more than half of the air that we, ox- the oxygen of the Earth is is generated by the oceans. That's amazing right there. Yep. Um, the plants that are in them, phyto- phytoplankton, seagrasses, seaweeds generate um well, I don't really know, but they say between 50 and 80% of our oxygen. Yeah. So wow. air to breathe. Um, climate. So the ocean currents regulate 
the global climate system, yeah. redistribu redistributing heat and moisture around the planet mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and moderating otherwise what will be very other, otherwise very extreme temperatures. So okay. they make the land habitable. Yeah. Um, food. <laughs> So they feed millions of, obviously, all the creatures in the sea, feed mm -hmm. millions of animals and millions of people as well. Yep. So, so I, they estimate, I think it's WWF, estimate 200 million people um, are directly, also directly, or direct, indirectly or directly employed in yeah. fisheries. Efficient. Yep. yep. So it feeds millions of people, millions of animals, and employs millions of people. Yeah, gives people livelihoods all across the globe in coastal cities. Absolutely. The numbers are just daunting. When you talk about uh, one of the numbers that really stuck out to me was that um, between 50 to 80%, they weren't exactly sure, of all plants and animals are in the sea. It just, it's unbelievable seeing stuff like that. And it just... Um, yeah, I think it's actually, they reckon 80% of all life is yeah. in the sea. I loved your line too. It's um, I think about this too, and when, when you know some of the billionaires are talking about Mars and all, you have this line. It's funny to hear a microbiologist on the radio getting excited about evidence that a single-celled organism might have existed in Mars, you know, thousands of years ago. When on Earth we have so many forms of life, and it's here now, and we don't even know the number. It's just that's. I mean, how you know, there's so much down there to to talk about and get excited about. You know, it's wild. Yeah, it's it's amazing. I also got like, and it's that they reckon ninety eight percent of Earth's living space is the, in the sea. It's unbelievable. It's so, <laughs> so important. But I mean, to speak to that too, I loved. I mean, it's a it's a beautifully written book too. The intro when you were uh, what was it, John Stone Strait, when you're describing that. That's just it's a beautifully written book. You talk about all these beautiful places that we need to protect. Um, you know, uh, on the coast or or in the oceans, but also there's a lot of beautiful sea creatures. There's so much wonder and magic with these sea creatures you talk about. And I always like to bring this up when I talk to talk to anyone who writes about these sort of things. Is there anything, um, is there like a sea creature that when you were doing the research or as you were out working in the oceans, that just kind of, whose characteristics kind of just blew your mind? And then, because there's a few in the book that, I mean, whether it's like the Caribbean reef octopus or other ones where I'm just like, these things yeah. are well, there were, magical. There were loads. Magical. There were loads. Yeah. Um, that leafy sea dragon in the in the aquarium in Barcelona was pretty amazing. Yep. And and of course we went on. I went on a couple of whale watching trips mm -hmm. in my, off Vancouver Island, and you know we saw some incredible creatures there. You know, really yeah. majestic, huge creatures. But actually, I think the one that impresses me most, I have to say, phytoplankton. I call them the unsung heroes of the sea. Nice. Um, they're microscopic, free-floating plants drifting through rivers and seas. And so far, they've identified 40,000 different types. Wow. And they're all different colours and shapes and sizes. Mm -hmm. And some of them are just beautiful. You know, I've got, I've actually got a, a book, a University of Chicago Press book. Oh, really? Photographs of these fighting, and they're just beautiful. They look like... They look like something from another planet, some of them, yeah. or like jewel. They're like they're just beautiful. And they multitask like nothing else. Because not only are they they're the foundation of the food chain that feeds all the life in the ocean. 
it's like the, you know the base yeah yeah of course yeah. um and they also absorb over a hundred million tons of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere every day wow that's what nasa reckons they are working hard hard down and there. not only that <laughs> not even done but they all with the seaweeds and other marine plants they they produce you know what we said earlier they produce yeah. up to 80 percent of the earth's oxygen Maybe. these little tiny creatures are doing all of this all the heavy lifting yeah. it was cool to see in the book the whole you know the food chain and the interconnectedness of everything was so important if something uh, for example, I think the sardine populations, when they went low, California sea lions are struggling. There were so many of that. And I'm sure if things were happening to this phytoplankton, you know, there's, you know, uh, it, it tumbles down from there. Just you could really see yeah. how, how everything, everything's connected. When we're talking about climate change. We're talking about air we breathe. It's all there present in your book. Um, the high seas is a crucial, crucial thing to talk about. And we're talking kind of the ocean outside of um you know, further out deep seas and managing that is, is, is a big challenge. And, and, and this is crucial because it's such a big part of the ocean, what's termed as the high seas. Maybe you could describe that a little bit, what the, mm -hmm. the high seas are and kind of the challenges that, um, that are there for, for managing fishing on the high seas. It's, it's, it's been a, been a big concern really from what I can tell. Yeah, and there's just been that new the new treaty which you probably have heard about, which mm -hmm. has just been agreed. The Is that the High Seas, Seas Alliance? Uh, the United Nations High well, it's the High Seas Treaty, which was agreed, finally agreed in March this yeah. year, but it doesn't come into effect until it's um, ratified by at least sixty countries. So. Oh, okay. It's, but it's a good start. Yeah. So yeah, the high seas are basically all the water that mm -hmm. is lies beyond. Every coastal state has two two hundred miles wide, exclusive economic zone. They call it. Mm -hmm. And then beyond that, everything beyond that is the high seas. So, it's sixty four percent of the global ocean. Wow. And, <laughs> wow. Yeah. And so you so, think being, being where it is, um, you know, uh, further out and there, I mean, enforcement has to, enforcement's a problem everywhere, but it's got to be even harder in that type of situation. Is that right? doesn't have to be, no, really. Yeah, it um, not necessarily. It's yeah. about political will, basically. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, and that, well, it's, and so the high seas are what's called um, a commons resource. Mm -hmm. So it's, um, it's, it's kind of a, you know, it belongs to everybody, but it yeah. doesn't belong to anybody. It, yeah. So, yeah, it's uh, yeah. it's supposed to be a shared resource, but it mm -hmm. isn't because the most of the fishing in the high seas is done just by a handful of countries, and yeah. the only reason they do it is because their fishing fleets get massive subsidies from the government to pay for the fuel. It's a long yeah. way to get there, yeah, and it's not economically viable to get there if you don't get these. Subsidies from government. So uh, it's about six, five, or five or six countries that um, actually I've got it here. Five countries do fit eighty-five percent of the fishing in the high seas. That's crazy. That's China, Japan, Spain, South Korea, and Taiwan. So all those governments are involved with helping these uh, 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 companies get out to those high seas. They all have um, subsidies. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a bit of a problem because. Um, the organisations that are supposed to act, uh, manage the activities in the high seas, 
it's this kind of funny system of different different bodies organizing different things so you've got a whole range of fisheries management organizations that some of them manage particular species and some of them manage certain areas then you've got the international seabed authority and then you want to do so it's all a bit of a it's a sort of muddled what i call a muddled mosaic of management authorities that don't they don't they're not coordinated and most of them are profit driven that it's about making money it's not about protecting biodiversity so um fat chance have been able to sort of look after the high seas basically even though the law of the sea says that we should be doing that it's really funny to think about the fact that um and i think there's a few cases pointed out in in your book that i mean by preserving the oceans and protecting these populations, the money can still be there. I mean, it, it increases harvests. I mean, we get to mm-hmm. keep the sustainability going for a long term. It seems like it's just like a no-brainer to to do all we can to protect these things instead of just you know uh, doing all this uh, just just harvesting in this really irresponsible way. It's very very distressing, and it was fun to well, read about. Go on. Well, I was going to say, money wouldn't still be there. There'd actually be more money, a lot more money, money. right? Yeah, because you've only got to look at what Norway does. Uh-huh. I mean, it's, their their system isn't perfect, yep. but they manage their fisheries in a way that they don't, you know, um, what's the term? Kill the goose that lays the golden egg. So, yeah. and they make loads of money. So oh. actually, you make more if you do if you manage your fisheries well, you make more money. Absolutely. I'm glad you mentioned Norway. I was going to bring it up and you just kind of nailed it right there. Some, there's a lot of great stories of communities doing it right and communities preserving, you know, the the the, the ocean and, and ocean life around them, which was beautiful. Um, I do want to bring up this because this could be something that could help us a lot as we try to protect this. It's, it's something called the pu- public trust doctrine. And um yeah. So it's used to protect natural habitats in, in, in several court cases. You mentioned in the book how you love a success story and it's been used for, um, you know, the ozone. I, I don't I don't I don't know how you use to protect our oceans, but yep. um, it's an ancient it comes from an ancient Roman law. And it mm-hmm. is also embedded into constitutions of quite a lot of countries, um, including the United States. Yeah. Um, and it has three simple elements. It's it's a, it basically obliges governments to manage um, how their citizens you or and governments use natural resources for the mm-hmm. common good and for future generations. Yeah. And uh, so it sees the government as trustees of this of mm-hmm. these natural resources, and they're obliged to to use them wisely. Um, first, you know, because a lot of people are frustrated by the lack of action to stop climate change, so they're citizens are actually coming together and taking their governments to court using this this, this doctrine. doctrine yeah absolutely um and in the united states for example there's a whole load of um cases on them at the moment and then there's a brilliant charity called our children's trust mm-hmm. which files climate lawsuits on behalf of groups of young children against um federal governments for not doing enough to stop um, CO2 emissions so it's and then there's a whole load of other lawsuits going on in other countries like Colombia, India, Japan and there was a successful one in the Netherlands. Yeah I saw that we're starting to see some some success stories out of those law of those cases which is which is very heartening and and, and hopefully we see more. Yeah so 
but there isn't one about the oceans at the moment but it is something that might happen in the future yeah um so i was going to say yeah because i think you said about the um the problems um you know all the all the problems that that face the oceans which are legion they they basically fall into two categories the ones Uh that come from the land yep that we produce on land and then the ones that happen in the sea yep you know um so it's like it's so it's so enormous this (laughs) if i read it i kind of yeah when you go through the the list of like threats to the oceans and, and challenges you're facing it feels like a really intense uphill battle that we're going against but it also shows why it's so important to to work yeah yeah but i think I was, well i've you know obviously it's this massive list of all these horrendous problems to, yeah. to deal with. but the biggest problem of all of these uh-huh. is which i've kind of figured out and i, I think i talk about it in the book is that we don't care enough yeah society definitely. doesn't care enough yeah you mentioned you that about inertia, like uh, the the lack of inertia and lack of care is 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 definitely one of the biggest problems it's in there yeah because if you think about it if you really care about something yep. you love something you look after it yeah if you don't care then you know yeah, that is whatever. the key thing yeah you did i mean i mean that's a kind of steers us where i want to kind of bring it home with the you do you get into these uh solutions that we can all do I and mean, obviously you know there's bigger picture stuff and the governments have to be dealt with and everything there but I love how you do bring it down to a practical level with, um, you know, what you can do personally to to fight some of this. And one of those things was, you know, being educated more, whether it's, you know, which fish are being over harvested not to eat. Also, just the you, you, you mentioned this idea that if people do know more about it, they might care. They will care if you don't know about yeah. it. But if you do know about some of these problems, but I think it'd be a fun way to kind of bring this whole thing home to talk about some of those solutions that we can we can all do uh, ourselves i think that that uh, you know lisa would love to hear that okay well it it can be quite small things that don't uh-huh. take up too much time or change your life too much yep i've, I've just got i've just written down three actually love to hear it. Um, the first one is to support a marine conservation organization mm-hmm. because they act on our behalf and yep. they need supporting and it can either be like with a regular donation monthly donation or like i was doing it you know if you've got any time to actually vol- just to volunteer yeah. that's that's a that's a great thing to do beach, beach cleanups you met you show how beach cleanups go a long way populations are yeah. actually returning to different beaches after these cleanups it's it's it, that was that was great just great great to read about yeah and and i i tend to try and support the smaller organizations because mm-hmm. they're quite often more financially stretched yeah yeah. Um, and the next thing is just to be careful what you buy and get into reading labels. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a great label reader. Um, if you eat fish, to be sure it comes from a reputable source. And I, I think um, in the United States, you have the Monterey Bay Aquarium have their online seafood yeah. guide. Yeah, absolutely. Um, or, you know, just, just a, and particularly to avoid farm salmon, farm shrimp, farm mm-hmm. prawns those things are very um environmentally harmful in the production so and i just say read labels and anything to do with cleaning particularly household products cleaning products you know they've got all sorts of really nasty chemicals in them um and also like and sunscreen creams i was yeah that one that was really surprising me i mean i should have assumed or should have known but i mean it's directly directly putting it 
on our body and taking it right into the ocean in many cases. Yeah. You know, it well, even not going into the ocean, even just if you if you shower it off, it system. goes into the sea. Absolutely. Yeah. So Absolutely. you can get ones that are labeled reef safe. Those mm. are the ones to look out for. Yep. And then the third thing, like you just said, read, watch, learn about the oceans, walk along a coast path, do go whale watching, do a beach cleanup, yeah. and talk to your friends and family and get them mm-hmm. interested as well. Definitely. Well, I mean, I think that's why there's a lot of importance in, in a book like yours. It's, it's raising awareness. And I mean, like I said, it taught me a lot. But one thing it really did is it gave me a lot of hope that something can be done. Not only did the law exist, I mean, you, uh, you're, you, there's that one quote on that one page. If we can rid the world of smallpox, if we could put people on the moon, mm-hmm. if we could set up the United Nations, uh, then we can stop a bunch of near duels from um, ruining and wrecking our ocean. We have potential. <laughs> and I think, you know, more and more as I read your book and, and, and you know, saw these ideas of communities doing it right. And just it just gave me hope that there's, it's a big problem. But I just started to think more and more that a solution is possible. So I loved that about the book. It's it really, it was, that was great reading that. So I appreciate you talking about it. I, like I said, I learned a lot and I'm glad to spread the word about it. So thank you, Deb. I really appreciate you coming on the program. Well, thank you. It's been really nice. This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at osirispod.com.